Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one. They had a literary club. They had lots of arts activities. They put on lots of drama, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time. They put on uh, vaudeville shows the historic Annie Russell Theater at Rollins College. The Annie Russell Theater is indeed a jewel, both architecturally and in its long history of productions. And the endangered Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In 1922, a group of student singers from Duval High School performed Sally, Won't You Come Back to Our Alley on radio station WDAL. Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one, was established in 1877. Like many buildings in downtown Jacksonville, the school was destroyed in the Great Fire of 1901. Tim Gilmore is an author and writer for jackspsychogeo.com. He explains that Duval High School was rebuilt in 1907 and expanded quickly. By 1920 and 22, uh, uh, the school built two uh, additions, an addition on either side. And uh, just five years after that second edition, 1927, uh, was Duval High School's last graduating class. During its 20-year heyday from 1907 to 1927, Duval High School had an active student body. In addition to having a variety of performing arts groups, Duval High School won the state football championship in 1913 and the state basketball championship in 1926. Tim Gilmore. That's really interesting to me looking at uh, (laughs) school yearbook quotes. Uh, They were they were Uh, very literary, you know, Um, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, often grandiose, um, you know, you would would probably refer to a lot of their selections as purple prose. Uh, And, uh, you know, the the young men uh, sometimes referred to them, their quotes referred to them or compared them to Alexander the Great. And so you can see kind of the the gender norms of the time period too, and what, uh, you know, the conquest that was going to be expected of the young men. Uh, And then, you know, with the young women, uh, you know, that they should be fair as a rose in May and things like that. Um, but they did have, uh, they had uh, a literary club, they had lots of arts activities, they, they put on uh, lots of, of drama, um, including, uh, you know, this was the norm for schools in Florida at the time, they put on uh, vaudeville 
um, shows. And so you can look in some of the old yearbooks and see, um, uh, you know, not only were they uh, using songs from um, the, the biggest plays on Broadway at the time, um, but there was, there's also um, inevitably minstrelsy involved and students wearing blackface and um, you know, things that um, really resonate with us now, obviously, but um, did not so much with white students at Duval High School in this um, Jim Crow time period. Students came to Duval High School from all over the city, but many walked to school from Springfield, an affluent neighborhood with Victorian-style homes. By the mid-1920s, the demographics of downtown Jacksonville were changing. 1931, this is just four years after Duval High School closes, uh, but it gives context to the changing uh, demographics in the city at the time. Uh, the comprehensive city plan of Jacksonville referring to Springfield said, uh, many former residents during the past four or five years have left Springfield to live in other areas where property is restricted. Uh, and that meant, you know, by race. Uh, and it said tenement dwellers have entered Springfield and the property generally speaking is depreciating. And when this state starts, its rate of progress is rapid. So um, what was happening in uh, Springfield would happen uh, more generally in uh, historic um, center, center city neighborhoods in the decades to come, but kind of got an early start in, in some ways in Springfield. Tim Gilmore believes it's the demographic changes around Duval High School that led to its abrupt closure in 1927. Jacksonville already had what is now an historic African-American high school. The Stanton School dates back to the 1860s, but its current red brick structure was built in 1917. Stanton School uh, in uh, La Villa, and, um, which is a little bit to the west, and generally people think of La Villa as part of downtown now. Uh, it was in its time, uh, first its own town, <laughs> and then uh, its own uh, community and district, uh, and it was a dense um, uh, people think of it as a historically black district, which it was, but it was also uh, really diverse. Uh, there was a Syrian population there and a Chinese population there and a Cuban population there. Uh, but Stanton High School um, was, uh, you know, the desegregated black high school. And this, of course, is where uh, James Weldon Johnson was was principal for a time period. Uh, and um, and Stanton High School is uh standing empty right now and not in very good shape. And its board has recently asked city council for, uh, for help. Um, it's, it's hard to see exactly what might happen with Stanton um, at this point, but uh, it would be an enormous loss if Jacksonville couldn't do something with it. Following its closure in 1927, the Duval High School building was repurposed several times. It was briefly a junior high school in the 1940s and was then used as administrative offices for Duval County Public Schools until 1971. By 1980, the former school became the Stevens Duval Apartments for the elderly. In 1980, it reopens as um, senior residential space. And what's really fascinating about this is that some of the uh, students who had actually attended Duval High School ended up 
living in the building, which <laughs> was at this point converted to uh, Stevens Duval Apartments. Um, and, you know, I guess if you had great high school memories, that, that could be a good thing. Um, if not, it, it might sound like hell, you know. Um, <laughs> high school reunions for former Duval High School students were held at Stevens Duval Apartments. Martha Wells was the last living student from the last Duval High School graduating class of 1927. She went to the University of Florida and became a teacher and principal working for Duval County Public Schools for 40 years. The oldest uh, former student of Duval High School uh, just passed away a few years ago. Um, and uh, she was 102 years old when she died in, in uh, 2011. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's something kind of haunting about looking at the, uh, the final yearbook, which I use a number of images uh, from in a recent story um, that I wrote about this at jackpsychogeo.com. Um, there's something kind of haunting uh, in, in looking at their senior quotes and um, the drawings of a person who later became a prominent artist and was daughter of a prominent artist. You know, and then they had these odes to the school and saying that, you know, they, they referred to the school as, as a mother and that, you know, they were, for the rest of their lives, they'd be carrying the forth the memory of, of um, you know, their, the, the mother's school. And, uh, you know, this was the last year, uh, 1927. And so um, uh, those memories, of course, pass on when people pass on. And so... Uh, 2011, 102 years old, the last uh, Duval High School student passed away. The Duval High School building lives on thanks to architect Ted Pappas, who renovated the neoclassical structure after it was saved from demolition. Tim Gilmore. Ted Pappas is uh, he's a beloved figure here in Jacksonville uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, he has done some really significant um, modern designs in the city, but he's also done uh, some really important historic preservation work. His career has always kind of, um, you know, tackled both things, uh, went back and forth between both things. Uh, he uh, uh, designed a, a very um, kind of mid-century modern, but also looking back to ancient Greece, uh, stru a structure for uh, the Greek Orthodox Church here in, in Jacksonville. Uh, and he's, he's probably best known for a very brutalist um, piece of architecture, uh, the um, Singleton Retirement Center, uh, uh, which was done, I uh, forget the exact year right now, but it was late, late 70s, right around 1980. But he also uh, was responsible for renovating um, Duval High School, um, Old St. Andrew's uh, Church, which was built in the, the 1800s and is now um, used by the Jacksonville Historical Society for its uh, meetings and its programs. Um, the, uh, the Seminole Club um, near uh, the center of the city um, lots and lots of buildings. It, it kind of feels like you can throw a baseball downtown from one of the, the historic structures that Ted Pappas has, um, you know, saved in, in one way or another to the next. Uh, so uh, his career has been prolific and has looked both forward with um, 
you know, interesting um, modern designs and um, constantly focused on saving the city's historic architecture as well. Tim Gilmore is author of the book Box Broken Open, The Architecture of Ted Pappas. We spoke with him about Duval High School, Jacksonville's public school number one. Sally, oh Sally, won't you come back to our This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can find archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Central Florida is associated in the public mind with theme parks, but the area also has a rich history in theater. Connie, as a graduate of Rollins College a couple of times, I'm not entirely impartial, but one of the theater jewels is the Annie Russell Theater at Rollins. The Annie Russell Theater is indeed a jewel, both architecturally and in its long history of productions. But its origins in the late 1920s were mired in what historian Joan M. Jensen labeled the politics of performance, a complex intersection of gender, race, evolving theatrical directions, institutional conflicts between faculty and administration, and the role of community and philanthropists. If the previous sentence didn't alert you to the complicated and convoluted history of the project, I will state it plainly. This article contained more moving parts than any article I can recall. And yet, in the hands of a historian of the caliber of Professor Jensen, the pieces fall into place and provide the reader with an appreciation for the theater and an understanding of the complexity of the moment of its creation. Connie, what is the politics of performance to which the article refers? The politics was both national and local. On a national level, performance in the early 20th century underwent several transformations that upended more established ideas about theater. As Jensen explains, popular theater in the first decade of the new century included both public entertainment such as circus, vaudeville, and burlesque, as well as professional theater that enlightened audiences and stimulated understanding of human emotions and actions. Popular entertainment moved from local production to consolidation of entertainment groups under the control of a few producers who sponsored large touring companies. By the 1910s, popular entertainment was being challenged by the rising motion picture industry. In addition, local theater groups that mounted productions of classical dramas also faced declining audience interest and reduced funding sources. This crisis led to an ambitious search for new plays and new ways to present them. 
From the 1910s to the 1930s, New York generated a thriving center of small theater cultures. African-American theater exploded with experimental plays and musicals. Immigrants supported ethnic theaters. According to Jensen, in this period, live theater offered a place not just for serious drama, but also for experimental musicals, for folk drama, for dance. This revitalized performance art sprang up across the country in rural towns, in regional centers, in newly established high school and college drama programs. This revitalization became known as the Little Theater Movement and was supported through philanthropy in the 1920s and the New Deal in the 1930s. Little theater groups formed most successfully around colleges and universities with the support of community organizers, actors, and audiences. One-act plays were staged in clubhouses, union halls, church basements, and community centers. Women played leading roles in the movement, and soon Little Theater held national conferences to exchange ideas for further innovation. Clearly, as Jensen notes, one did not have to be in New York, Cleveland, Chicago, or Minneapolis to participate in the Little Theater movement. One could be in Winter Park at Rollins College. In 1925, Rollins hired a dynamic new president, Hamilton Holt, who brought reforms to the campus that included the hiring of Dorothea Thomas to create and direct a little theater. They had no designated building for staging productions and presented their plays in the local Episcopal church where Reverend James Bishop Thomas, Dorothea's father, served as the minister. Well, that all seems pretty straightforward so far. How does it become so complicated? As is frequently the case when complications arise, the intersection of personalities and institutional reform clashed, and living in the South, race and gender also added complexities. In addition to Dorothea Thomas, in 1930 she married Lawrence Lynch, a local newspaper editor, three other women played a significant role in the creation of the Annie Russell Theater. Annie Russell herself, a retired actor with a long career on New York, London, and international stages, moved to Winter Park to be near her sister. Mary Louise Bach, heir to the publishing fortune that included the Ladies' Home Journal and wife of Edward Bach, was a friend of Russell and the benefactor who would fund the construction of the theater, and Zora Neale Hurston, who in 1932 returned to Central Florida after two years of intense involvement in the Harlem Renaissance black theater movement. The vision for theater in Winter Park for each of these women soon came into conflict that intensified as Rollins faculty and even Hamilton Holt began to restructure what the theater and the theater program at Rollins would be. Dorothea Thomas Lynch wanted a space for mounting plays that advanced the little theater movement. The, quote, helpful, end quote, interference by her husband and her father compounded the problems. Dorothea wanted Annie Russell's support and connections to secure funding for the construction of a theater. Annie Russell was supportive, and her friend Mary Louise Curtis Bach was willing to fund the construction, but she wanted Russell to direct the theater and wanted more traditional performances. After the theater opened in the spring of 1932, Russell agreed to allow Thomas Lynch and her students the use of the facility for some little theater productions. 
Zora Neale Hurston needed financial support for her own efforts to stage plays in the black community of Eatonville. She found encouragement, if not funding, for her projects among the Rollins faculty and in 1933 presented a one-time production of her play from Sun to Sun on the Rollins campus. Well, although it's complicated, it would seem that everyone eventually got what they wanted. Not quite. Against a backdrop of dissension among the Rollins faculty, things fell apart. Thomas Lynch and a male theater faculty member clashed over the direction of the department. In 1933, Thomas Lynch's contract was not renewed. She left to earn a master's degree in fine arts at Case Western Reserve. In 1936, she returned to Florida as director of the Federal Theater Project of the WPA. Annie Russell died in 1935, and Bach lost interest in the theater program. Zora Neale Hurston pursued a variety of opportunities in Florida, Tennessee, and Chicago before entering Columbia College to work on a Ph.D. In the spring of 1938, she was back in Florida with the WPA. As the Great Depression dragged on, the little theater movement waned and disappeared under a backlash against what many saw as radical art. The building and theater at Rollins remained, but the story of its association with the little theater movement stayed in the shadows. As Jensen concludes, Rollins theater history reminds us how dramatic performance reflects the cultures it represents and how it acts as a lightning rod for cultural differences. In the details of their quarrels, we can study the way in which personal and community politics affect performance art and thus how it takes form. Well, drama both on stage and off stage at the Annie Russell Theater. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge has assisted shipwreck survivors since the 19th century. As Holly Baker reports, the historic structure could now use some assistance of its own. The House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar in Stewart is the oldest building in Martin County and the only remaining of 10 shipwreck life-saving stations that once existed in Florida. Built in 1876, it was operated by the U.S. Life-Saving Service before the creation of the U.S. Coast Guard. In 1974, the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar was added to the National Register of Historic Places. Because of its historical importance, it's also been included on the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list that highlights the most threatened historic properties in the state. Emma Dietrich is the Public Outreach Coordinator for the East Central Region of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. She told me more about the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar. There were 10 original Houses of Refuge that expanded from Matanzas Inlet all the way down to Biscayne Bay. And what was unique about them was the fact that they had live-in keepers and their family at these houses. And their tasks were to not necessarily provide aid to active shipwrecks. They were not supposed to risk their life or limb. They were not life-saving stations like the rest of the country. They were specifically there to help shipwrecked victims or to secure property loss after wrecks. So these became virtual halfway houses to be able to help sailors get back on their feet 
and then get transportation back so they can get to the next ship, they can get to the next port of call. Since 1876, the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar has weathered countless storms and provided shelter for numerous shipwreck survivors. The Houses of Refuge were uniquely Florida. They only existed in Florida. They were designed specifically for the Florida environment because how dramatic and how barren the landscape was. Sailors were at more risk on land than they were at sea in Florida, just because they had more risks of starvation, exposure in this uninhabited landscape than they did their actual shipwreck. They're more likely to survive the wreck and then die on Florida coasts. In 1904, the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar had a particularly busy week when two shipwrecks, the Georges Valentine and the Cosme Calzado, wrecked within 24 hours of each other. As a result of the two shipwrecks, 22 surviving sailors lived in the House of Refuge at the same time. Shipwrecks like these didn't happen every day. Houses of Refuge were occupied primarily by families of the keepers. So the Houses of Refuge were designed specifically in mind that the keeper and their family would live there and up to 10, 15, maybe 20 sailors would be staying in the house at one time. So the houses are technically two-storied. The second story is more of a loft situation, and that is where the sailors would stay if they were wrecked. The downstairs section is meant to be the living space, so it has your class bedroom, living area, and then your kitchen space. They would have had an auxiliary cistern to provide fresh water, and they also would have had a outdoor shed space that would have been to house a small sailing craft to be able to provide assistance. More often than not, the keepers are providing preventative assistance, especially with the age of gasoline-powered vessels. They were learning how to maintain and repair gasoline engines, going out and giving warning to sailors about tidal changes or areas of rough currents, and were more proactive in preventing loss than they were actively engaging with shipwrecks. When the modern U.S. Coast Guard was established in 1915, the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar became a station that was in active service during World War I and operated as a submarine lookout in World War II. After World War II, lifeguard towers were introduced and the station was decommissioned. While the other houses of refuge were dismantled or destroyed by storms, the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar has been protected due to its location on the Anastasia Formation. Emma Dietrich. It sits on top of the Anastasia Formation, which is kind of like the bedrock of Florida. It runs virtually the entire length of 95 is the best way to describe it. And it is a fossilized shell and coral combination, very jagged, but it creates this really aggressive ocean landscape. The energy that it pushes into this Anastasia formation causes large sea sprays that also kind of add to the drama of this house of refuge. and also adds to the issue of the sand gets eroded out. And the only reason why this house has not been destroyed is because it sits on top of the Anastasia formation. It also sits on top of a Native American midden site. So I always like to say it's a one spot in Florida that you can really experience a large section of its history. You get the Native American midden that's underneath, and you can learn about that Native American history, but also learn about the early pioneer days in Florida and this house of refuge system, which again is just uniquely Florida. In 1955, 
The Martin County Historical Society began operating the House of Refuge at Gilbert's Bar as a museum. Since the 1960s, the warm coastal waters near the House of Refuge have also become a sea turtle preserve. Today, the location of the wreck of the George's Valentine, located approximately 100 yards from Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge, is a popular diving spot and a haven for a variety of marine life. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.